Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, I'll bring you the latest news, discoveries and stories here from the University of Glasgow's College of Arts and Humanities. We are about to travel both backwards in time and around Scotland and Wales. I am joined by our own Professor Nigel Leesk and University of Wales Centre for Advanced Welsh and Celtic Studies, Professor Marianne Constantine. Nigel and Marianne are going to introduce us to their work on the Curious Travellers Project and introduce us to the travel writing of Thomas Pennant. Now, I'm ashamed to say that I had no idea about Pennant or the impact he had on the birth of tourism in Scotland and Wales, and indeed travel writing and the works of other writers. And I really, really enjoyed listening to Nigel and Marianne. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to tell you that they also share some extracts of Pennant's writing, so you can really experience just how talented a writer he was. So, enjoy! I'm Nigel Leesk. I'm Professor of English uh, language and literature at Glasgow University. I'm a specialist really in the Romantic period in empire, in travel writing, and in Scottish writing of this kind of period. Well, that's mainly why I'm involved in the Curious Travellers Pennant uh, project. And I'm Mary Ann Constantine, and I work a bit like Nigel on long 18th century Romantic period. I'm particularly interested in the interactions between Wales, England, and the British Isles as a whole in that period and particularly interested in the 1790s and travel writing and what travel writing can tell us about the cultures of Britain. I'm really excited because you're both going to talk to me a bit about Thomas Pennant today and the Curious Travellers Project. So do you maybe want to give us a little bit of background on the project and what it is and maybe a bit about how it came to be and then we'll delve into Pennant. I think it grew out of conversations like all good things, probably over a glass of something in a hostelry in Glasgow <laughs> or Aberystwyth. But Nigel and I discovered that we were both getting increasingly interested in this character who appears in everybody's footnotes, but was never really front and centre of anybody's focus in the kind of work we were doing. Uh, turns out he's front and centre if you're interested in the history of um, shells or, of, um, you know, British zoology and the rest of it. He's very well known in certain circles, was appearing less uh, clearly and very much on the margins of work in 18th century Enlightenment thinking and studies of, of Britain as a whole. We were very fortunate in getting a small grant from the British Academy, which allowed us to run a couple of day workshops, one in Aberystwyth and one in Glasgow. And out of the conversations that we had there, we were able to put together a project which was funded by the AHRC called Curious Travellers. And the name comes from a letter that Pennant himself wrote to a friend in the 1770s saying, I am a curious traveller and we wish to be thought of as collecting the kinds of things that anybody studying his own land might be interested in. He claims this is the first to have done it, doesn't he? Which isn't quite true, but he kind of claims credit for being the first person who travelled systematically in his own country. In his own country. I'm not sure whether he means Britain or Wales at that point, but certainly. So from then, um, we worked fantastically hard on collecting, transcribing correspondence with a wonderful research team. And... Looking at some of the tours other people did 
after Pennant to see what sort of stretch and influence he had on the way people travelled and perceived landscape. And then just last year, we were fortunate enough to get another tranche of funding for Curious Travellers. And we have begun the mighty project of editing Pennant's tours of Wales in three volumes and two tours of Scotland, um, which we'll be talking about a little later in this podcast. It's worth mentioning that the that second What's, well, there are all sorts of new things about the second project, but one of the most exciting is that we're working now, we have new partners, we're working with the Natural History Museum in London, and there's a new kind of, I think, more of a focus on the natural history. So we're having our final conference uh, in uh, Gilbert White's, Gilbert White House, aren't we, in, in Selborne? Yeah, Selborne, yeah. Yeah, Selborne. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to find out a bit more about Pennant, given that, as you've just said, he's in the footnotes of many other people's work, which I think is a fascinating way to describe someone. Can you tell us a little bit about his early life and just sort of what shaped him so he was born into a gentry family in northeast wales in flintshire the family owned downing hall which is up near hollywell on the north coast up there and he was brought up as a for most of his earlier life in bichton which is right down by the coast but very close another family house when his father died when he was relatively young, he became the squire, as it were, of, of Downing Hall. Reasonably well off, but not stinking rich, not a huge estate. And as he always said, kind of big enough for him, not, not, not too much to manage. He managed to acquire a few more bits of land by swapping things with the Mostyns, <laughs> the neighbours. He was educated in Wrexham and then went to Oxford for several years but really I think his education was driven by his own curiosity and his correspondence with other people he's one of the most insatiably curious people we've ever come across and even the tiny fraction of the correspondence that we've managed to transcribe and edit is just an eternal pestering of people who know things uh, for answers, for specimens, for descriptions, for more tip-offs. He's, he's a really, really yeah. keen correspondent, yeah. isn't he, Nigel? Yeah. He is. And there's an interesting, his location's interesting, though, as well, as you say. I mean, from Flintshire, that part of North Wales, he's it's a very near the English uh, border, and he has a townhouse in Chester. And because there are no really substantial towns in Wales in this period, in the 18th century... His sort of base, in a sense, is in Chester, isn't it? When he's not in Downing. I was reading in his The Wonderful Account of Holywell, that last book he, was it the last book he published? He describes watching the ships sailing into Liverpool from the coast. He's right on the Wirral, overlooking the Wirral. So he can actually see the, the, all the sea traffic coming in and out of the port of Liverpool, which is, as he says, it has changed from being a small fishing village to a major colonial port. And of course, as we know, a centre of the slave trade in the course of the, the, the 18th century. So... There's that curious location. He's from a very old Welsh family, but and that Welshness is very important to him. But he's also very closely linked to the Midlands, to the to, Eng, to English, to the Chester, and to London, and to the institutions of the Enlightenment there. Yeah, I think that being brought up on the D estuary is part of what shaped his character, actually, because he's a creature of the borders and he can always see both sides. Now, later in the century, you will not get anybody in Wales saying anything good about Edward I, the conqueror who planted all those castles around Wales, but who is, of course, much admired by tourists for planting all those beautiful castles for people to come and visit. The way Pennant describes historical conflict is always fascinatingly from both sides. So his 
brilliant one-liner on Carnarvon Castle is that most magnificent badge of our subjection. <laughs> you are both Welsh and looking at it from the outside yeah, in that yeah, single yeah, sentence. Yeah. And his yeah. whole tours, I think, are, are capable of looking dispassionately at history. So, for example, he wrote or collected a huge amount of information about Owain Glyndor, the, the, the Welsh rebel who was, you know, the great fighter for Welsh, Welsh independence in the 15th century. And he collects sources in Latin, French, English and Welsh. And so what he creates is a multi-perspective account of a historical figure. And I think that really characterises his approach to everything, is that he, he, he seeks other voices to understand the subject all the time. And that's what makes him such a passionate correspondent, I think, with other people. I think, I think that's also the I secret think. of the, the secret of the success of his Scottish tours, because um, most Scottish tours before Pennant, and indeed after, like you know, um, Daniel Defoe and Edmund Burt and Dr. Johnson, who toured just a year after him. And in fact, this year, so 2023, is the 250th anniversary of Dr. Johnson's tour of the Highlands and Islands, very much in the wake of, of Pennant. But basically, those English tourists tend to create a slightly Scottish readers felt uncomfortable. They felt there was a kind of element of prejudice. There's a period of very tense relationship between England and Scotland in the 1760s and 70s. And but Pennant was able to speak to a Scottish readership. His books were very popular in Scotland because precisely because he was able to be dispassionate and even handed in the way that Marianne is describing. And I think being Welsh helped. It, was, it wasn't the usual English version take on Scotland. It was a Welsh mm. take on Scotland. So there's an interesting triangulation going on between Wales, England and Scotland. And that gave him a different perspective, I think, which is, for me, at least something of why he, you know, is, uh, has such a spectacular success. Um, I mean, you know, his, the first of his Scottish tours goes through, I think, five editions during, you know, in the, rest, in the remaining years of his life. There is a fantastically popular books, very, very bestsellers, really, you know. There's some interesting things about his childhood and, and early background, I think, which also shape him as a character. He says that when he was a boy, he was given the gift of beautiful, large book called The Ornithology by, by Francis Willoughby and John Ray. And he said that was the book that made me a naturalist. And so from early teenager, he's deeply interested in the natural world around him. He's looking, he's observing, he's collecting, he's writing. And a very moving thing is that his own copy of that book is held in the National Library of Wales. And you can see where this boy, this young man, has dotted the birds that he's seen in his own Flintshire area. And I think that would be a lovely project one day, would be to go back and see how many of those birds uh, we can still hear in the woodlands uh, around his home. But it's it's lovely to have that that mark of, of the person using a book. I think it brings them very much alive across the 250 years. Other things that shaped him early on in his life, from Oxford, I think, he went down to Cornwall and he met this extraordinary character, William Borlase, a great antiquarian of Cornish matters, who was deeply interested in prehistory, in um, druids and dolmens, but also in the natural world, and who wrote a, a sort of um, great sort of antiquarian natural history of Cornwall. And Pennant immediately, having met him, enters into correspondence with him. And there's some lovely letters from the 1750s where he's sort of badgering this very, very busy and learned gentleman to send him seagulls and things that he's, he's collected. And he tells <laughs> 
how to preserve them and how to kind of cook them in a certain way and then which ship they need to go in to get up to Chester so that he can collect them. So there's already that kind of enthusiasm, which I think must have worked because that correspondence is quite a rich one and and he clearly engaged other people's enthusiasms as well. So he's certainly of his period in that. So he does a lot of travelling, other travels, doesn't he? As well, exactly. The well, around, around the same time, his father seems to send him on a sort of business trip and he does a big circuit of Ireland, of which we only have two little sparse notebooks left, detailing the itinerary and jotting in some notes. But even that's enough to give, give you a flavour of what this young man must have experienced and the things he must have seen in this other country. And that was probably his first lone tour as a young adult. And it sort of set set the ground for... Didn't, didn't he claim he hadn't written it up because the, he, he was overwhelmed by uh, Hibernian hospitality. In other words, it was such a, it was such a rave up party that he didn't get around to actually uh, writing the thing up. That's right. Yeah. So the, uh, my writing was maigre because the entertainment was so gras. And <laughs> right. in, in one of the letters to Borlase, he complains that they were so fantastically good at looking after him that he couldn't slip away to look at <laughs> monuments that he'd got earmarked to go and see. So there's that. There's then a marriage to Elizabeth Falconer of Chester and a baby who dies in infancy and then two children um, Arabella and David, David, who will become a great mainstay to Pennant throughout his life and share his interests and work with him later in life. And tragically, Elizabeth dies when the children are very young. And there is another tour then, isn't there, Nigel, to the continent? It's interesting that actually much of the time, the Scottish tours certainly are written at a time when he was heartbroken. You know, he was, he was, he'd been, he was a widower he had two, what he calls his two little prattlers, his two young children who were being looked after back home in Downing, but they had no mother. And he was clearly brokenhearted when he was traveling, but he never mentions it. There's a strangely, you know, very much within that tradition of natural historical or antiquarian objectivity. You know, although he, there's a lot of pen in his writing, he doesn't talk about his particular, the melancholy that must have afflicted him a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And I think travel was a kind of panacea for that. Traveling helped to keep it, take his mind off the uh, the mm. sadness of un- un- underlying that, and he get he marries a second time. There's a happy second wedding, a second marriage, isn't there, to um, Muston, the daughter of Sir Anne. Roger Muston and Anne Muston. And I can't remember exactly what date that happens, but he sort of settles down after that, doesn't he? And doesn't travel quite as much. No, uh, although that's when the tours of Wales are. That's right, uh, yeah. I think it's possibly another reason for the tours being more local. So he's travelling more domestically, you know, um, after after the second marriage. So it's quite interesting how his personal. Um, the shape of his personal life does have an influence on the actual tours and the writing and the, and his his actual production as a as a travel writer. Absolutely, and the tour of the continent that he makes um, straight after his first wife's death in 1765. I think there are moments in in the account of that when you you, you can feel him being very deeply mm-hmm. shaken by by that grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a moment in a a uh, monastery in Switzerland, uh, La Chartreuse, uh, where he meets a religious man, a monk, and is almost tempted to give up the world and, and go and, and retire. And I think that's grief. But he's also very busy then as a young man working on his British zoology, which was the thing that he's probably mm-hmm. best known for, actually, the legacy the tours he wrote were very, very popular, but the thing that has endured is probably his contribution to the description and cataloguing of all 
the birds and animals of the British Isles. And I think one thing that we've really discovered through working with our colleagues in the Natural History Museum and Dr Edwin Rose in Cambridge is the extent to which that curiosity about the natural world drives travel and drives the correspondence. He's been called the most important British zoologist between John Ray and Charles Darwin. And yet he, he's not in the same league. He's been, because he's more of a descriptive zoologist, he hasn't had the, perhaps as much credit. I think that's beginning to change. I think his reputation, the work of people like Edwin Rose and others is beginning, and what, hopefully what we're doing as well, is really bringing out the connections. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's heard of, you know, Gilbert White of Selborne. Not nearly as many people actually have heard of Pennant. But, you know, if you look at the, mm-hmm. the Pennant, Selborne, the letters, the Gilbert White's letters from Selborne are actually addressed to Thomas Pennant. Pennant enables that situation, oh. that whole project. I've just had the pleasure of reading a really lovely blog by one of our colleagues in the Natural History Museum, Stephanie Holt. So she's found White's copy of Thomas Pennant's British Zoology. Oh, wow. Pennant gave him, and she's written about this. And one of the things that White tells Pennant is that the quality of the images in the book will be of infinite use to young naturalists better than any text. So that's another important thing about Pennant, is that he was somebody who paid attention to the visual world, to images and to trying to depict landscape, monument, as well as um, birds and shells and animals. He's a great patron of, of different artists, isn't he, Nigel? I and mean, that's one of the key you know, selling points of the Scottish tours of the two. So I mean, he tours, I'll perhaps say more about it in a minute, but he tours Scotland twice mm-hmm. in 1769 and 1772, publishes different tours, and they're, they're related to each other. The second tour is much more ambitious and extensive, but it's published with the first part of it, it has 90 plates. This is the first visual documentation of Scotland, the first travel book to have extensive visual documentation. That's partly because Pennant believes in the importance of the visual image as a means of describing in the way that Marianne's just been been saying, you know, describing places and and objects and natural histories, uh, specimens. But also, I think, because the technology for producing uh, book production, publishing has changed and it's kind of possible now to to, to run off books that are, you know, they're they're on the upper end of they're, they're not cheap books but they're lavishly illustrated and it's possible to include a large numbers of high quality engraving prints in them. And that's a really new sensation for readers. So we've got this fantastic visual sense of Scotland. It's like it's a kind of multi-snapshot of Scotland in 1769 and 1772. You both may want to touch a bit on the illustrations and how Pennant arranged them, because hmm. he wasn't doing them himself, was he? No. Well, well he does, he does one, actually. <laughs> uh, so 1769, he, he travels... Really, and this picks up, this emerges nicely from what Marianne's been saying about British zoology, because he's preparing to extend the edition of, of British zoology. So he says he has to, he's never been to Scotland and he can't, he says, I can't understand the zoology of my own country. It's meant to be a British zo- zoology uh, without going to, to look at the um, species in Scotland. So he packs his bags, gets on a horse with a one manservant, sets off to Scotland and they ride in the very, very north of Scotland. It's a three month tour. Uh, but he doesn't have an artist with him. And when he gets back to Wales, uh, he sets about writing it up. Unfortunately, we've lost the original journal um, of both these tours, but they would have been probably similar to the, to the Irish one that Marianne has, has described. And he has to commission. He has, there are 19, I think, 19 or 20 plates in that first tour, but they're all commissioned from artists like Paul Sandby and uh, others. But he has to pay for them. But actually, one of them is Ipsy Pixit. He does a, a, a picture of... Um, a castle in northeast Scotland, which just has Ipsy Pixit, which shows that Pennant was a really quite a competent artist. But 
it might have been a, sn a snobbish thing that his he was a gentleman kind of curious traveler it was a more artisanal process to actually do the, the visual work to do the drawing and when he makes the second tour because he's had to pay a lot of money for these illustrations for the first tour he decides he'll take an artist with him and at this point he's got the wonderful a wonderful artist uh, called Moses Griffith he's humbly born where's he from Marianne in Anglesey so the, the Thin Peninsula Clefdarn. and our colleague Fionn Jones suspects that he picks up Moses Griffith from um, another sort of gentry family where the lady's been using him to make records of natural specimens. So again, it's coming out of that tradition of drawing and correctly identifying and um, minutely observing specimens, natural objects, shells, sea creatures and the rest of it. So, so Moses Griffith has been trained up to use his pencil to be accurate. And what happens under Pennant's watch, and he stays with Pennant for the rest of his life, is that he also becomes a landscape artist. And there's this very interesting progression in Griffith's work where he starts to produce these sometimes quite dramatic mm. seascapes and cliffscapes. You have to think about what's happening. You know, this person from North Wales, born up an entirely sort of Welsh speaking area, within a few years of beginning his career as a, a, an artist for gentry families <laughs> you know finds himself up on the western isles of scotland in a completely new environment traveling with some incredibly interesting people and it must have been an amazing experience and one, one wishes that griffith had had kept a diary or you know if yeah he had, that would have been that would have been fascinating really? i mean in a sense we've got this amazing visual record because all the as i said there are you know a hundred over a hundred plates by moses griffith more than that in the 72 scottish tour those are the, just the printed ones but in Pennant's own extra illustrated copy of the tours in the national library of wales there are dozens and dozens more watercolor beautiful watercolors by moses griffith which didn't make it uh, they were just you know it was expensive to create prints so Pennant had to select a certain number. There was a maximum number he could use. But this is all the surplus. And there's some fantastic images there that are buried away. These are images of the West Highlands, of sky, of ascent, of you know, small isles. You know, in 1772, no one's seen these pictures before. And no one's really thought of looking in the National Library of Wales. They're, they're really the earliest visual documentation of much of, of, of Western Scotland, West, the West Highlands, certainly. And it's a fantastic record. I think he was a very talented artist. Pennant was slightly snooty. He, he always refers to him in correspondence as my artist servant. He doesn't call him Moses Griffith. My artist servant. Oh, but he does. Call, he calls him Moses quite a It depends he, who he's writing to. And he's very affectionate. Yeah, There's yeah, a lot yeah, of banter, yeah. I think. Precious. He calls him my precious <laughs> at one point. So. <laughs> I should point out as well that one of the strands of the Curious Travellers Project is to bring the visual legacy of Pennant's tours um, much more into the open. Um, we've got the wonderful Lisa Cardi from the Natural History Museum, who's worked on a lot of crowdsourcing projects in the past helping us to make the images from the Welsh tours and the Scottish tours which have not been published before accessible digitally with a crowdsourcing project which will allow us to tag them and search them in different ways so they should be available for use from for everybody um within the next two or three years as we as we progress on that side as I, well i don't think we mentioned that the whole the output is an open access searchable um uh, online text of the tours which will be anyone can just kind of click onto it and hopefully you'll be able to if you're in a place you can get it on your phone 
and you can actually connect to what Pennant said about the place in 1772 with, with the notes. If you, if you can get a signal, that's right. <laughs> so we've learned a little bit about where Pennant went on his two major tours of Scotland and with whom he travelled. Tell us some more, Nigel, about um, the travelling party in 72, because it wasn't just the artists that Pennant decided to take. It was a very well thought through tour, the 72. Yeah, he was. Very, so he's very friendly. This is exactly the same period as Captain Cook his uh, voyages to the Pacific. And um, on the first voyage to the Pacific, uh, of course, the philosopher on Cook's ship was Joseph Banks, the, the guy who really was behind Kew Garden, the greatest English naturalist of the of the 18th century, president of the Royal Society for decades, very, very eminent uh, naturalist. And he was a friend of Pennant's. And actually, this uh, Pennant's tour in Scotland, 1772, is dedicated to, to Joseph Banks. And in a way, Cook's voyage to the Pacific was a kind of model for Pennant's voyage to up the Hebrides to the Hebrides, uh, it's like a miniature, domestic, more domesticated version of of the Pacific tour. And he actually says the Hebrides and Western Scotland, the Highlands particularly, were pretty unknown to Southern publics in this period. And Pennant says there it, uh, that there is little known as as Kamchatka, which is I think somewhere up on the the, the northwestern seaboard of the Pacific, isn't it? Uh, it's a slight exaggeration, but there's some truth in it. That this is. In the 18th century, these are inaccessible places. It's a Gaelic-speaking culture. It's difficult for people who haven't got Gaelic to travel there. There's a very limited transport infrastructure. The military roads have made it have opened it up a bit, but it's only still beginning. It's only beginning to be visited. And Pennant's really one of the pioneers in, in trailblazing, you know. And he goes up on the ship. He, he charts a ship called the um, Lady Frederick Campbell from um, the Firth of Clyde, from near Helensborough. And he's accompanied on that ship with a, um, an expert botanist called Dr. Edward Lightfoot, who is the um, chaplain to the Duchess of Portland. He's a distinguished English botanist who publishes the first Flora Scoticum, which is a, the first systematic description of Scottish flora. And Pennant pays for that. He pays for it to go to press and everything, and it's very much his project. So Lightfoot's up there helping Pennant with the botany. Botany is not Pennant's strongest area. He's more of a, he's more interested in ornithology and in minerals in shells. But he's accompanied by this specialist botanist Lightfoot. Uh, the other person who's of note who accompanies him is a young Perthshire minister called Dr. John Stewart of Killin. And Stewart is a, also trained as a botanist at Edinburgh University. He's been trained by Dr. John Hope, who's the first academic to teach Linnaeus's taxonomical system of botany in, in a British university. And he trains a whole generation of very important botanists in Edinburgh, who then fan out all over the world. Stuart has attended his classes in Edinburgh. But Stuart is also one of the leading Gallic scholars of his generation. His father and he are involved in the translation of the Bible into Scottish Gallic. And Stuart is, is responsible as part of a team, but he does a lot for the translation of the Old Testament. Uh, his father has translated the New Testament, which has been published in 1767. Pennant doesn't speak Gallic himself. And remember, if you're traveling in the Hebrides or the Gaeltach, the Scottish, the, the highlands of Scotland in the middle of the 18th century, everyone speaks Gaelic. Few people, only really ministers and gentry can speak English. You have to have an interpreter or you need to be bilingual in order to get around. So Dr. Johnson, for example, and Boswell hire two highland horsemen in Inverness to accompany them to the West Coast. And they, they act as interpreters. Um, it's actually easier for English travelers in France because most educated English people speak French but they don't speak Gaelic. And the same with Welsh. They don't tend to speak Welsh. So you have a similar problem and a similar issue in Wales. And although I think, although Pennant, he doesn't speak Gaelic, certainly, but I think because of his Welsh background, he's aware of the of the linguistic kind of um, environment in Scotland. He's aware of what it's like, you know, being in a, in a uh, culture where English isn't spoken. 
I think Dr. Johnson found that a bit of a shock to his system. Pennant goes with it. He's quite interested. He's very interested in it. He collects Gallic proverbs. He publishes an appendix of proverbs in the Gallic language that, in the first tour that he's uh, picked up from uh, Glenorchy, from a, probably from the blacksmith, McNabb in, in Glenorchy. So there's a real interest in that. He's got this expert Gallic scholar with him. And that's partly why it's, these books are of great value to us, because things like place names, the information about Gallic culture is very accurate, because it's come from the, the fountainhead, as it were. He's also got a Fowler who helps him, you know, in the days before, if you were an ornithologist, the days before binoculars, if you wanted to get a good look at a bird, you had to shoot it. <laughs> so it seems a bit kind of harsh, but they shoot huge numbers of birds. And uh, that's why a Fowler is needed if you're going to study them. Um, and then this is a couple of ser- his French servant, Louis Gold, who suffered from terrible seasickness on the trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very good little team, though. They all seem to get on very well. And they get tremendous hospitality every, everywhere they go. It's that kind of very much a team effort, it really in the, in the sense that inspired by, by Banks, uh, Banks's voyage. And it's also a team effort for when he gets back home to Downing, because the way that what's unique about Pennant is that these aren't just his impressions as a curious traveler. They're also based on intensive a networking procedure when he sends questionnaires to local experts, to ministers and parishes, remote parishes in Skye or in uh, up in the northwest in Ascent, Sutherland, you know, Wester Ross. And they also, the ministers or other gentry will send back these questionnaires with detailed accounts of their parishes and the natural history, you know, Druid uh, monuments or brochs or medieval castles, Viking burials. All this stuff, you know, and it's all there. We've had great fun looking at, uh, for some reason, a lot of the stuff is in the archives in, in Warwick County archives, packed with information about the rural Scotland in the mid-1770s. And again, this is like an untapped resource for, for scholars. And all this stuff goes into Pennant's books. So the books, are he's a, he loves gathering information. He's a master of gathering data, gathering information. And he keeps changing as, they, as each new edition comes out. He'll put new stuff in or take stuff out. So it's a complete nightmare to try and establish a, a stable bibliography. But I think he does the same with Wales, doesn't he, Marianne, to some extent? He does to some extent. And it's interesting, I think, that the Welsh tours, the whole project of writing the Welsh tours comes after Scotland. So you would think you'd sort of start at home and work outwards, wouldn't you? But no, I think it was the classic thing where you... You go away and you thoroughly explore another culture and then you come back and you look around you and you think, oh, my goodness, there's stuff here that we've never really thought about in this particular way. And so Pennant's Tours of Wales, um, he's certainly beginning to ride around Wales with kind of forethought and deliberately thinking about creating tours from the early 1770s. But he really gets together with writing things after the trip back from Scotland in 72. So um, we have notebooks from 1770, for example, but most of the material is done and it's done in a very different way. Now, obviously, if you're heading off to the Western Isles, you think ahead, you pack, you work out staging posts and you have a kind of itinerary. If you actually live in northeast Wales and you want to go to Snowdon or uh, Anglesey, well, you just go and stay with the nearest gentry friend you have and you do a day excursion on ponies, perhaps, or on foot. So you can think of Penance Tours of Wales rather than a single 
extraordinary lines snaking up through mountains and coasts and the rest of it, but as a series of, of sort of radial excursions, a series of, of little outward excursions from nodes. And those nodes are the important gentry houses of 18th century Wales. In those houses, of course, there are manuscripts, there are books which have come down through the families. And so in a way, he's often working in the library in the morning and then heading out for a day excursion to visit a castle or a a burial mound or something like that in the company of a friend. So it's it's a very different vibe. And yet, similarly, the Tours of Wales, they do that same thing of layering and um, kind of collating information. And to be honest, it doesn't make Pennant the easiest read on the planet. I think we've all got to admit that there are times when he simply overwhelms you with information. Certainly editing the Tours of Wales, you you set out in, in all good faith from Downing and he immediately heads east towards England spends a hundred pages in Chester and then wanders down the borders before ambling back again towards northeast Wales. And that's volume one. So um, my colleague Elizabeth Edwards is currently editing Chester and she's sort of thinking she's never going to get out of Chester. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but And also before you get to Chester, you've probably got 20 pages just on mining and mineral deposits, which I used to just stop at and just, jump over and jump ahead to something that I thought was more interesting. I'm now really interested in 18th century attitudes to what goes on under the ground. And I find his descriptions of mineral deposits, both beautifully written, informative and provocative in all kinds of ways. And I just wanted to read you a little bit from an extraordinary mine on Anglesey known as Paris Mountain, which is a copper mine. And it's by now it still exists and it's been mined for copper well over the centuries these days it looks like the face of mars um copper landscapes are extraordinary and our artist ali lockhead did amazing artistic work using pigments from the copper mine it's sort of shocking yellows and reds and oranges and i just wanted to read what pennant said when he reached this extraordinary scene of of sort of mineral devastation The whole of this tract has, by the mineral operations, assumed a most savage appearance. Suffocating fumes of the burning heaps of copper arise in all parts and extend their baneful influence for miles around. In the adjacent parts, vegetation is nearly destroyed. Even the mosses and the lichens of the rocks have perished. The sides of this vast hollow are mostly perpendicular, and access to the bottom is only to be had by small steps cut into the ore. The curious visitor must trust to them and a rope till he reaches some ladders which will conduct him the rest of the descent. On the edges of the chasms are wooden platforms which project far. On them are windlasses by which the workmen are lowered to transact their business on the face of the precipice. They are suspended. They work in midair, pick a small space for a footing, cut out the ore in vast masses and tumble it to the bottom with great noise. So two things going on there. Um, First, a very clear account of the ecological effects of mining on the natural landscape. And secondly, a very careful interest in the processes of what people have to do to extract the minerals, which are busy feeding into a British economy on all footing. So 
Pennant is again he's 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 perfectly aware of what mining does to the country he's describing but he's also aware that those are resources that are going towards the economic uh, progress of Britain so he he sees it from an improvement as well as a an environmental angle this is kind of before the industrial revolution really gets off isn't it but it's extraordinary how he's looking forward to the kinds of forms of industrial pollution caused by extractive industry like mm. copper mining um, and, and he goes down the, the coal mines in Whitehaven I've been editing that bit and yeah. you know describes the dangers of you know the Davy lamp the dangers of fire gas in the in the mines such an interest and there's so much there I love the way he writes uh, about work he's really really interested in forms of labor and forms of work whether it be mining in Paris the, the wonderful passage you just read or when he's in Sky, he visits um, mm-hmm. a place called Corrie near Broadford. He visits a walking, pulling a party of women who are pulling uh, cloth, pulling wool, or, and they sing songs with as, as the famous walking songs, spelt W-A-U with a U, walking in English, in Luag in, in Gaelic. And I'll read you a short passage from that, which is a wonderful description, I think, of the women. And this is illustrated by a wonderful plate by Moses Griffith, which is quite famous, actually, because it's one of the first visual records we've got of the process of pulling wool. On my return, I'm entertained with a rehearsal, I may call it of the luag, or walking of cloth, a substitute for the fulling mill. Twelve or fourteen women, divided into two equal numbers, sit down on each side of a long board, ribbed lengthways, placing the cloth on it. First they begin to work it backwards and forwards with their hands, singing at the same time as at the kern, the kern being the hand mill. When they have tied their hands, every female uses her feet for the same purpose, and six or seven pair of naked feet are in the most violent agitation, working one against the other. As by this time they grow very earnest in their labours, the fury of the song rises. At length it arrives into such a pitch that without breach of charity you would imagine a troop of female demoniacs to have been assembled. (laughs) Some wonderful descriptions that they sing in the same manner when they are cutting down the corn, when 30 or 40 join in chorus. The subject of the songs at the Luag, the Quern, and on this occasion are sometimes love, sometimes panegyric, and often a rehearsal of the deeds of the ancient heroes. But all the tunes flow in melancholy, slow and melancholy. And of course, we know now that one of the kind of great genre of Gaelic song is the walking song, the songs that were sung very much a genre of women's song. Women only sang these whilst they were, um, where they were fooling the cloth, very much regulated by the rhythm, the beat of the boards clashing against each other which creates a sort of drum and bass for the for the women's songs. So I thought I'd share this lovely description, I think, of... And of course, he's, you know, Pennant's also visiting the Hebrides during a very tough time for the community. At a period after Culloden, when Highland culture was being severely uh, undermined, landowners were raising rent. There was a clampdown against Gaelic culture in the wake of the rebellion of the Jacobite uprising. And indeed, there were a whole series of climate events like the Black Spring of 1771. So whenever he traveled in the islands, he was finding people who were literally starving. They were on the brink of starvation. And he was very shocked to see the conditions people were living in. In, This is meant to be a home tour. This is part of Britain. But these people are living in a state that, you know, they're, they're actually poorer than the poorest, poorest villages in Africa or whatever. They're actually literally starving to death. It's quite an eye opener to him. These sorts of descriptions made it, he had a huge impact on on readers in you know in the in the metropolitan area when they realised that actually this Britain that they they were familiar with, with was a lot more, a lot different from what they imagined. Um, there was a lot of unevenness, a lot of poverty, a lot of people were living in a totally different world from the city, from the more advanced urban you know um, world of the of your average kind of reader. 
what kind of impact did this writing have on the readers and did it inspire them to go visit the communities or anything like that or was it just more sort of a internal reflection on the state of Britain I suppose yes they had a I think they had a I know they had a huge impact on readers and one of the readers who was first who was first inspired although he didn't say so was Dr Johnson (laughs) Samuel Johnson read um, the 69 tour and he and Boswell his Scottish friend decided they'd follow in Pennant's footsteps but Johnson didn't like Pennant's politics because Johnson was a high Tory and Pennant was a Whig and famously Johnson describes him he says he is a Whig sir a a poor a poor dog and a Whig but he's the best travel writer we have he describes better than anybody else there were reasons for you know Johnson was writing his tour just when Pennant's had come out in Voyage of the Hebrides he had to be very careful not to repeat what Pennant had already done so, for example, notoriously, Pennant, in his tour of Scotland, the first tour, he writes about Edinburgh, which at this point is the centre of the Enlightenment. You know, this is the place where all this incredible stuff's happening. David Hume and Adam Smith and, you know, Cullen and Lord Kames and everything. Smollett, uh, Tobias Smollett, the writer, calls it the same year, calls Edinburgh a hotbed of genius. Johnson, Pennant has 14 pages describing Edinburgh. Johnson dismisses it in one sentence. <laughs> uh, Edinburgh is too well known to merit description, he says, and then moves on. Partly because it's been done by Pennant already. He can't trespass in Pennant's territory. Partly because Johnson hated the philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment. You know, he believed in a, a different kind of learning that he felt the scepticism of the Enlightenment had underpinned, had undercut rather. Um, so I think there are all sorts of complicated things going on. But actually, Johnson and Boswell often follow in Pennant's footsteps and they keep arriving at place. I've just mentioned uh, Corrichatican and, and, uh, and Skye, where... Pennant stayed with his party for uh, for several days. Johnson and Boswell are guests of Lachlan McKinnon of Corrie-Cattigan the following year. And uh, everyone's talking about Pennant, this really interesting Welsh guy who's been staying the year before. And Dr. Johnson, you can imagine just changing the subject. <laughs> we don't want to hear about Pennant. <laughs> and again and again, Pennant's been there before them in a way. So he, Johnson doesn't mention Pennant in his book. He, I think he mentions him twice in passing. Once when he visits Iona, the, the medieval ruins of the monasteries of Iona, saying that he's not going to bother describing the dimensions of the ruins because Pennant has already done it really well. So he pays him his dues, but he won't, he won't say much about him. You know. But after Johnson, um, so Johnson's books and Pennant's come out of, you know, in the mid-1770s. This creates a real wave of Scottish tourism. Over the next decade, between 1775, 85, 95, this is the, really the peak period huge peak of a Scottish tour when everyone has wanted to go on tour to visit the particular the Highlands and Islands and they're very much traveling in uh, Pennant's and Johnson's but mainly Pennant's footsteps. Pennant's books are guidebooks people have them they get they take them with them they, they use them as kind of you know the lonely planet guide to to the Vale of Skye or to the Great Glen or to to Argyll or whatever so I think it's an enormous uh, impact. It's interesting though that Pennant's tour has been have been rather forgotten I think because of the prestige of Johnson's because of Johnson's is a much more famous writer you know he dominates the literary scene in the late second these decades of the 18th century Johnson has an inimitable style he's a fantastic writer fantastic stylist and and Pennant I think has suffered in comparison he hasn't had his due because he's been a bit eclipsed by Johnson and I think that's something we're trying to remedy we're trying to get a more nuanced view of of both writers to think about Johnson after Pennant but also to see what, you know, where Johnson's good and Pennant's less good. They're just different. They write in very different complementary ways. One of the ways that we know that people are reading Pennant um, when they come to Wales and Scotland is because they're irresistibly drawn to Pennant's vocabulary. 
And if I could just read a couple of lines of a very famous section about Hollywell, which is Pennant's home patch, there's a very beautiful medieval church where a spring of St. Winifred bubbles forth inside the church precinct. And everybody comes to Hollywell to see the well. And almost everybody uses exactly the same words as Pennant uses here. So Pennant begins by saying, the road to Hollywell is remarkably picturesque along a little valley bounded on one side by hanging woods, beneath which the stream hurries towards the sea unless we're interrupted by frequent manufactories. Its origin, so the origin of the stream, is discovered at the foot of a steep hill beneath the town of Hollywell or Trefunum, to which it gave the name. The spring boils with vast impetuosity out of a rock and is received into a beautiful polygonal well covered with a rich arch supported by pillars. I have found the word vast impetuosity in dozens of writers <laughs> following Pennant. They simply cannot resist his style. The same with the Paris Mountain quote, and the same extraordinarily with his view from the top of Ruizva, Snowdon, which again, I would just love to read you a little bit of because Pennant's description of Snowdon is the classic description. And there's a fabulous moment in a tour from 1798 by a very good writer called William Bingley, who travels all over North Wales, talks to absolutely everybody, does his research, hangs out with local Welsh vicars, goes climbing, describes the first sort of proper rock climb of one of the, the Welsh mountains, climbs to the top of Snowdon, and you're expecting this guy to produce an amazing description from the top of Snowdon, and he just says, do you know what? Pennant did it better than anyone else, so I'm just going to hand over to him. He then cites Pennant for about seven pages without interfering at all. And I certainly won't do that to you now because we haven't got time. But I'll read a little bit of his of his wonderful double description of the view from Snowden or Ruiva. On this day, this is in 1770, the sky was obscured very soon after I got up. A vast mist enveloped the whole circuit of the mountain. The prospect down was horrible. It gave an idea of numbers of abysses concealed by a thick smoke furiously circulating around us. Very often a gust of wind formed an opening in the clouds, which gave a fine and distinct vista of lake and valley. Sometimes they opened only in one place, at others in many at once, exhibiting a most strange and perplexing sight of water, fields, rocks or chasms in 50 different places. They then closed at once and left us involved in darkness. In a small space... They would separate again and fly in wild eddies round the middle of the mountains and expose in parts both tops and bases clear to our view. That, I think, describes anybody's experience who's been on a mountain in that extraordinarily shifting weather with cloud, mist and wind. When you literally don't understand where you are, you don't understand what you're looking at. But Pennant had been up in the 1750s and he also includes a description of what it was like on that day. And this is every tourist's dream. In a former tour, I saw from it the county of Chester, the high hills of Yorkshire, part of the north of England, Scotland and Ireland, a plain view of the Isle of Man and that of Anglesey extended like a map beneath us with every rill visible. I took much pains to see this prospect to advantage, sat up at a farm on the west until about 12, walked up the whole way. The night was remarkably fine and starry. Towards morn, the stars faded away and left a short interval of darkness, which was soon dispersed by the dawn of day. 
the body of the sun appeared most distinct with the rotundity of the moon before it rose high enough to render its beams too brilliant for our sight. The prospect was disclosed to us like the gradual drawing up of a curtain in a theatre, the absolute perfect experience of a view from Snowden. And it's probably very likely that Wordsworth's very famous account of climbing Snowden in the final book of the prelude um, as a young man through the night to see the dawn break from the top of Snowden is not only inspired by that, but also influenced by it in, in the way he describes the mists and the clouds and the light. So th- those two contrasting views of what can happen when you climb a mountain become in a way the sort of the two ways of understanding mountains. And you can see them feed into mountain descriptions right down the generations after that. It's great fun with students actually giving those two passages. I've been using that wonderful passage of Penance, Climbing Snowden, the one you just read, and then looking at the passage from the final book of the prelude, Wordsworth's The Prelude, and asking the students to compare and contrast. And they're really, they're really interested by the links between the way that Wordsworth is building and, and developing in, it, for his own, in his own way on building on Penance's description. And, and you can find that in so many different places. I mean, Penance is such a bedrock. Penance gives a kind of a, a form of words to places that are available to visitors and travelers over the next century you know it's extraordinary sometimes he creates a kind of resentment on travelers because they feel that you know that they can't see it with unpenantian eyes and I, I could give you a little example of that again since we're talking about mountains it's a lovely description that again when he's at Corrie on Sky he climbs up the uh, mountain called Ben Lecalich which is just above Corrie which is one of the more accessible of the, the Coolins but he gets a great view over to the great Coolin Ridge the Black Coolins to the west and he, he writes Walk up Ben Nakali or the Hill of the Old Hag. It's typical of Penn. He'll give you the Gallic translation of the name Ben Nakali. Uh, one of those picturesque mountains that made such a figure from the sea. After ascending a small part, find its sides covered with vast loose stones like the Paps of Jura, the shelter of ptarmigans. Again, his natural history, ornithological thing coming through there. The top flat and naked with an artificial cairn of a most enormous size reported to have been the place of sepulture of a gigantic woman in the days of Fingal. <laughs> so the reason it's called the Mountain of the Old Hag is because there is this, this gigantic, oceanic, ancient, legendary woman buried there. But then this is what I love. The prospect to the West was that of desolation itself, a savage series of rude mountains, discolored, black and red, as if by the rage of fire. Nearest, joined to this hill by a ridge, is Ben Nagrian, or the Mountain of the Sun, perhaps venerated in ancient times. Malmore, or the Round Mountain, appears in the north. The serrated tops of Blavan affect with astonishment, and beyond them the clustered heights of Kulin, or the mountains of Kukhalin, like its ancient hero, stood like a hill that catches the cloud of heaven. The deep recesses between these Alps in times of old possessed the sons of the narrow vales, the hunters of deer, and to this time are inhabited by a fine race of stags. <laughs> um, and he's quoting Ossian there to give it that kind of real, kind of to give it resonance. And it's a slightly dubious. No one would agree now that Kulin, the name for the Kulin Mountains, is derived from the name Kukhalin. He was one of the warriors of the legendary Ossianic cycle. But that's current belief, you know, in his day. But when um, John McCulloch, who was a, a very sour, very important English geologist, but very sour character, who wrote a big book on the Highlands and Islands of Scotland about half a century later, when he comes to, to the same place, he climbs up Ben Nakalich, he's very sour. And this, I think this is kind of quite indicative of what Marianne was saying. He complains, if I were to try to describe the view from Ben Nakalich, 
I should not do it half as outrageously as penant as. Therefore, it is superfluous. In truth, it is as little interesting as possible. Oh. So because he can't say anything new, because Penance already said it, he's being sour and saying, actually, he's just overemphasizing. It's not very interesting at all. It's great. I think it's a lovely moment, that. Was Pennant aware of the impact he was having on other people's tours and their own writing then? Uh, he's certainly aware by the end of his life because people come to Downing. They come to his house on their own Welsh tours. So one of the things that our project did, and uh, my colleague Elizabeth Edwards did a lot of transcribing of later tours and editing them, people will mark Downing as one of the points of interest on that um, northern road to Conway and Carnarvon. And so we do have some really interesting little insights by people who were lucky enough to be invited in for coffee or to view his study. And this is becoming a new strand of our Curious Travellers project. where We're trying to track down things that Pennant had in his study at the end of his life, because Downing, the house where he lived, is just a heap of rubble. There's nothing there. There's nowhere you can go and stand and, and feel that that was Pennant's place. What we thought we would like to do would be to virtually reassemble the elements of that study. Now, Nigel spoke about the, the birds. He collected specimens of birds, some from all over the world. A lot of them have ended up in the Natural History Museum. The shells that he collected on the D estuary, but also got sent from ooh, America and all over the place, have also ended up in the Natural History Museum. So we thought we'd try and pull together some of the items in, in those collections. But really what people loved to see were his books and his manuscripts and I'm sure the extra illustrated volumes of his own works that Moses Griffith created a bit like a medieval manuscript so you have the text printed in the middle very small massive white margins and then Griffith doing these beautiful vignettes around the edges of a little castle here and a hill there and a coat of arms here. And again, this is part of what we're trying to do with the project is to get these images out into the public realm. So yes, people will call on Mr. Pennant and Mr. Pennant certainly knows that he's created this thing as an itinerary into Wales. And in his literary life, which he, which comes out, I think, in 1793, he rather is a, a bit smug at times, isn't he, Nigel? He does, <laughs> he does say, he says, um, I, you know, I'm honest, I consider myself as, as having effectively proven that Scotland was safe to visit and has ever since been inundated with southern visitors. Um, <laughs> he kind of said, I went but, there, I did that, and then everybody followed me. That's interesting. One of the reasons like one of the reasons I got interested in Pennant was I was in a previous project. I was working with the Glasgow University uh, Robert Burns edition, the Oxford edition. I'm still involved with that. And I edited the um, Robbie Burns's Highland Tour for that volume published by Oxford. And whilst I was researching Robbie Burns's Highland Tour, I realized that he was following the tracks of Pennant. And Willie Nicholl, his traveling companion, had a copy of Pennant. And there's lots of links. That's how I really discovered Pennant. And this is way back, about, about 2010, I suppose, Marianne, when we started sort of having conversations. I suddenly realized that actually Robbie Burns and Nicholl were following a, quite a well-beaten track. And it was very much a track that had been sort of laid down by Pennant and they were using the books as his, as guides and there's an awful lot of things in common. So that's a, a famous, you know, Robbie Burns is travelling at the height of his fame in 1787 when he's the, Scot he's the literary lion of Scotland. You know, he's an incredibly famous poet and yet Pennant is quietly there in the background. Mm. I don't think we've got any record of what Pennant thought of Robbie Burns's poetry or whether he ever read it, but uh, knowing him, he probably did. <laughs> 
Marianne, you've kind of touched on this a bit, but what's next for the project? So we're very fortunate in having had this second tranche of funding um, to reassemble our crack team. And I would just like to name check them here. We have, beside Nigel and myself, we have Dr. Alex Deans, um, who is working on the 1769 Scottish tour. We have the amazing Dr. Luca Guariento working as our tech advisor in the digital humanities department in, in Glasgow. In Wales, we have Dr. Elizabeth Edwards and Dr. Fionn Jones and myself working on the Welsh tour and Dr. Rhys Kaminsky-Jones, who is helping everybody with everything. He's our full-time postdoctoral fellow working on the project and helping with tagging the tours because the aim is to make these texts (laughs) instantly sort of accessible, but also to give you information so that you can link through to letters that lie behind the text to to find out more about the people that Pennant is talking about. Or to images as well. And to images, indeed. In the Natural History Museum, I think we've already mentioned Lisa Cardi. We've mentioned Dr. Edwin Rose at Cambridge in the Natural History Museum. And Steph Holt has been helping us a great deal with um, the Gilbert White connection there. So in the next couple of years now, we will be working hard at editing the tours, but we have events and exhibitions lined up, exploring some of the themes that we're interested in. We've got uh, talks from a very wide range of all the members of the team that most of the members of the team that Marianne has just mentioned are. I'm off to Yale University next in a couple of weeks to the Beinecke Library to look at uh, Thomas Pennant's own copy of his tour in Scotland, the one I'm editing, which is there with all his extensively annotated in his own hand. No Pennant scholar, as I'm, far as I'm aware, has actually looked at it. So there may be some interesting surprises there. I'm very excited to see it. We'll also be doing work with Greenfield Valley um, Industrial Heritage, which is up in Flincher near Pennant's home, looking at the things I was talking about earlier, how Pennant's observations can help us to understand environmental history and the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and what use travel writing might be as we try to think our way into the environmental crisis from an 18th century perspective and to to look at the decisions that were made um, historically and whether there are ways of going back to that period to kind of think think differently about energy use and, and resources. I'm, I'm very interested in that particular aspect. And then in our final year, we will be focused on the Natural History Museum, on Gilbert White's house in Selborne. We will have an exhibition where that relationship between Gilbert White, the quiet local country pastor, and Pennant, the traveller, the explorer, um, is explored through there writings and their correspondence so lots and lots to to work on and I have to say one of the things about curious travelers is that you really never quite know what's coming up next because (laughs) a single conversation with somebody um, at a lecture or a, a talk for a local history society will suddenly reveal a visit to a house where there might be a picture or some more manuscripts or a new way of thinking about things. And that's been one of the absolute pleasures of this project is that everybody can relate to place. And most people are really interested in travel. And so people bring you stuff, people write in, and people are also quite keen just to walk bits of penance itineraries. And we would encourage anybody listening to this podcast who 
wants to read Pennant or who, who knows a bit of Pennant or who is, is interested in those landscapes of North Wales and Scotland to take some time, go out and explore and, and write to us, write us a blog, tell us about what it was like to walk through a contemporary landscape with an 18th century guide. I think we're particularly interested in that layering of history to see the world through the eyes of what it was like 250 odd years ago and to think about the extraordinary and indeed deeply tragic changes that have occurred since then. It's a measure of the speed and sort of energy of the society that he was on the cusp of, I think, that that leads us always back to, to that 18th century period. Certainly, if you're interested in doing that, it's a great suggestion. For Scotland, we have on the Curious Travellers website, and, and if you're listening to this, I would really encourage you to, to look at that. And if you go to the interactive map, you will find a map of Penance Tours in Scotland. It's a split screen. On the left is a Google map with the itinerary. The details are everywhere he visited and some references to the to when he's there, the dates and the pagination in the book itself. On the other side, on the right, there are historic maps. There are different layers of historic maps. You can look at you know a map of, of Scotland in 1750s or in the 1790s and compare it to Pennant's description uh, and you can actually if you want to follow portions of that of that itinerary and we're hoping to develop a similar map of Wales we're working in collaboration with uh, the wonderful Chris Fleet at the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh who in the cartography department who set up this um, wonderful interactive map for us and do explore the website there's lots there um, there are blogs by people who've already done things there's some wonderful exhibitions by artists that we've commissioned in the past to respond to Pennant's text and there's just a lot of information about Pennant his circle about Moses Griffith the images of Moses Griffith which adorn the website are all have all been released free to the public by the National Library of Wales under their incredibly enlightened policy of working with Wikimedia Commons. So it's it's a real, really beautiful website because we've been able to use original 18th century images there. So yeah, huge thanks to everybody who's supported us over the years with this project. And we, we're just really looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future. Oh, thank you both so much. This has been an absolute delight for me to listen to. I've really enjoyed hearing you both talk about Pennant. And I know for me personally, I definitely want to go and explore Scotland now and kind of revisit places I've gone and kind of look at maybe how he's viewed them. I think that sounds like an amazing thing Mm. for listeners to be able to do. And I have no doubt that people are definitely going to want to find out more more about him because he just sounds like such this fascinating figure. And I can't believe that as you said back at the beginning, it was in other people's footnote. Yeah. Well, there we go. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. See ya. Thanks again to Nigel and Marianne for joining me and sharing so much about Thomas Pennant. If you are interested in finding out more and keeping up to date with the project, you can visit their project website, which is curioustravellers.ac. UK. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts and Humanities by following us on social media at U of G Arts Hums or by visiting gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Dr. Sia Jackson. Music is by Coma Media. We'll see you next time. <laughs>